0: I was a seventh grader. Brand new member of Troop 176. A brand new scout going on my first campery, which is when troops from all over Hamilton County, where we lived in Tennessee, gathered together and went went to a special place where each troop was lined up along a series of roads in the wilderness. It happened that this weekend in April, almost May, was similar to the weather we're having now. Rainy, foggy, cool. Nobody told me you were supposed to wrap your clothes, your changes of clothes in plastic. Everything I owned was soaking wet. It was a disaster, but I was trying so hard to impress my scoutmaster and the other scouts in the troop. And then it began to happen. My scoutmaster said, Boys, the campfire smoke is surrounding us and we can't breathe. We need a smoke shifter. Where's that new kid? Jordan, Jordan, where are you? Here, sir. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Little hesitation. Jordan. Jordan. Go to Troop 59. Get us a smoke shifter as quickly as you can. I ran to Troop 59. Mr. Scoutmaster, sir, my Troop 176 needs a smoke shifter. Sorry, son, Scoutmaster said. We just gave our smoke shifter to Troop 79. Scoutmaster of Troop 79, my Troop... Needs a smoke shifter. So sorry, boy. We just gave our smoke shifter to Troop 123. (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Scoutmaster, sir. Troop 176, my troop, they desperately need a smoke shifter. And about this time, I heard some boys over to the side say, what a stupid kid. Doesn't he know there ain't no such thing as a smoke shifter? No, I didn't know that. And not only did I not know that, I didn't know even when I got back to my troop and reported to my scoutmaster... Bob Wagner, sir, I couldn't find a smoke shifter. And he put his arm around me and he said, Son, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, but there's no such thing. Well, it was at that moment I realized I had been a fool. Now, I didn't give up, and I ended up Persevering, and I got my Eagle Scout, finally, in 1976. The goal here, of course, by the way, Daniel Solberg, where did you go? (laughs) I still love working with him, and Cheryl, and Catherine, and all our incredible musicians. Teaching our children is really dependent on how we have been taught what we have learned, how we have integrated what we've learned into how we live. Both of our scriptures this morning really are impacted by how it is we incorporate what the Bible is telling us and what teachers have told us the Bible is telling us, how we pass those pieces of information on and teach our children we hope well. Now, the first thing that the Bible really ends up battling in trying to help all of us learn better, what is God's dream for us and the people of God? The most elemental aspect of being human is the struggle with and against something we can call tribalism. Now, if you think about where the Bible emerges— especially the story of Abraham and Sarah, it's emerging out of a society, out of a world, really, that is divided into little groupings of people who are most comfortable with other people like themselves. We call this tribalism because they began as tribes, people who were family groups and slowly expanding into larger and larger groups of people but very suspicious, concerned about, and sometimes even scared of, usually even scared of, people who weren't like them, for good reason oftentimes. This dilemma of tribalism is endemic to our human condition and has always been so and still is now today. Part of what is racking our society right now is a return to this idea, this tendency toward Tribalism. What does the Bible have to say about this? The very first thing that occurs in the calling of the people that are our spiritual ancestors happens in this way. It's the calling of Abraham. It's the 12th chapter of Genesis. Now, prior to this, in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there is general information. It's storytelling, often offered in a poetic way of helping. All of us recognize our connectivity to all of us and the broader world and God's creation of all of life and all of people. It's in the 12th chapter of Genesis where there is a focal point. It's one man named Abram and one woman named Sarai. And together they become a family. And to Abram, God says this, I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, listen carefully, not to your tribe, not to the people who look like you, sound like you, dress like you, and are comfortable with you, but to all the families of the earth. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a radical notion, and this is directly combating this idea, this tendency, this endemic problem of tribalism. Right from the beginning, right at the calling of Abraham, the very beginning of our spiritual journey, our spiritual ancestors, there is this clear idea, this clear dream that God has. This is a human family. It's not a tribal groupings. It is a group of people who need to learn how to live and not only live together, but love together. When the psalmist is concerned about how this should unfold, there's this great sense of movement through the psalms. What is it we're going to teach our children? Well, this this wish, this desire, this prayer. Lord, make me know your ways. How am I supposed to live with these people around me who I don't understand and don't trust and often am afraid of? Teach me your paths. How is it I'm supposed to travel in this world that can be scary, that can be threatening, that can be filled with people that I don't understand and I'm not sure I can trust? Lead me in your truth. Help me to digest this vision that you have for me and for us. And finally, this great part of this 25th psalm. You are the God of my salvation. The biblical meaning here, of course, is the the basic one, to be saved from what is fearful and dangerous. But also, I love the sign in American sign language that some of us have learned over the years from people who can actually sign. The sign of salvation or God's saving Ability for us is this. It is the sign of being unshackled, of being liberated, of being released from bondage. You are the God of my salvation. So here's how this, I think, can work in the way the psalmist is wrestling with teaching and being taught and understanding what it is God needs us to do and to be. To learn this basic concept of God's dream for us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to love God with everything we are and everything we have. We talked about this as being the, the focal point of Galatians last week, and 2 Timothy continues on in this idea, a little more complicated at various points in 2 Timothy, where the world is becoming a little more complex for the early church. But in the psalmist, this idea of being taught and liberated from these old concepts and ways of seeing the world smaller than God sees it. Liberate me, O Lord. Help me to see your vision for us far beyond my smallness of mind and heart. Give me a better path, a better way, a better vision to align with your hopes and dreams for us. So 2 Timothy moves us further. And the first verse that we didn't actually read today, but I want you to hear because it provides a context. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Just this opening phrase, let's unpack this for a moment. Most of us want to be strong, both physically Mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. We want to be strong. And we want to experience grace. Strong feels like a hard word, grace feels like a tender, gentle word. But this very first verse, as a part of this second chapter, integrates them in a way that I find quite powerful. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. You have probably had encounters with folks who haven't had an easy task of doing this. Maybe you have felt this way. You have not received grace from others. Your life has been a struggle. You've never felt like people accepted you and loved you for who you are. There are people in our church that have wrestled with that their whole journey in trying desperately to experience God's grace. As members of a family of faith, it is incumbent upon us to be that place of grace and acceptance so all of us can be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus. It's not me or you who give the grace. It is us who channel the grace That is Jesus to others. This for me is fundamental to how this vision of God is supposed to work. The battle against tribalism, divisiveness, anger, be strong in grace that comes outside of us and is given to us as a free gift and incumbent upon us then to give it off to those around us because it's not ours. It's to be shared. The whole nature of grace is to be accepted and passed on. And what you've heard from me through many witnesses. I love the vision that unfolds here. You see that it's five different times that this key sense of learning and growing is passed on from person to person or group to group. This fundamental sense of Let's not hold this to ourselves. Let's pass it on. Andrew did such a great job this morning with our children in teaching. And how many of us have been blessed by mentors and teachers over the years who have helped us grow in a variety of different ways that have changed us, shaped us, nurtured us, given us, we hope, grace. How do we want our children to grow? Often the question is, what do we pray for our children? What do we want our children to be when they grow up? And most parents will say, what? We want them to be happy. We want them to be happy and we want them to be healthy. Anthony Campolo, Tony Campolo once said, this is okay, but it's smaller than God's vision for us. What we really should pray for our children and for us is not so much to be happy, but to be good. To be good, what does that mean? Well, in part it means to be content, to love others as we love ourselves, to accept and be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And because we have received and are receiving grace, we have the strength to share it and pass it on. It allows us to be content with ourselves and with what we have. So much of our world, at least in our economic world and system, we have trouble being content with what we have. We want more because it represents something that we don't have and we need and we want to be content. What a gift that is. To be good is not just being well behaved. It is being content with who we are. It is also to be kind. When we are content with our lives and ourselves and those around us, we can be kind. The word is profound. It it forms the root of kindred, that is, family-like. We can be kind to those around us because we see the family of God. They may not speak the same language or understand the world in the same way, but there is a kindredness in the broader vision of God's creation, as children of God beyond and with us. To be kind, and finally, to be compassionate. The word is loaded. It's not just being nice to folks because somebody was nice to us. Compassionate is one of those words in the Bible that is weighty, heavy, vital. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, it was the Good Samaritan that was the hero of the story. Why? Because he showed compassion, but it wasn't just compassion. It was a risky love. The Samaritan, the Good Samaritan, literally risked his life to offer assistance to another person. To be compassionate, to be good, is to be content with ourselves, to be kind to others, and to Experience and live out God's risky love to us through us with others. Some of you know that Harry Belafonte passed away this past week, 96 years old. Harry Belafonte, beautiful voice, uh, a great personality. Harry Belafonte was the first American to sell over a million copies of an album. 1956. Harry Belafonte also had a variety show that it was extraordinarily popular on television, sponsored by Revlon in 1959. It was becoming increasingly popular and it was becoming increasingly popu- uh, uh, controversial because in 1959, Harry Belafonte was not only uh, African American of Jama- Jamaican descent who was bringing on white folks and black folks on the same screen at the same time, he was speaking and teaching and singing controversial stuff that was pushing the boundaries of hope and integration and love. The head guy at Revlon came to Harry Belafonte in 1959 and said, look, what you're doing is good. It's clearly very popular but we got a lot of people, especially in the South, who don't like white people and black people dancing together. You're gonna have to choose. Either you have white folks on the scene with you or black folks on the scene with you, but you can't have both. And in 1959, right at the height of this variety show's popularity, Harry Belafonte looked at the head of Revlon and said, See ya. Literally, those were his words. And he turned around and walked out. Why? Because he was living out this risky love, this compassion for people who were like him and unlike him. A society that needed to have that push of hope and grace and strength and love. Let us teach our children and incorporate into our own selves this risky grace, love, and the power of God's vision, combating tribalism and the tendencies all of us through our human condition to be small-minded and petty, and yet merging, we hope, with God's gift of love and grace and a better vision for us all. May it be so. Amen.